the theme, as I've mentioned many times, uh, Dave Albert is very good at helping to coordinate our service in, into themes. But a lot of services will take on a theme that really is uh, even greater than we intended. And it seems to me that I've heard over and over this morning that God is bigger than we are. We don't understand a lot of the stuff that goes on down here, but God is bigger than we are. You know, this lady, Louisa Steed, is that her name, David? Had very tangible evidence of God's direct provision for her. Not many of us are going to experience a circumstance in which we have no food and then all of a sudden food is provided for us in that kind of a a setting. Our difficulties are harder to get your arms around. They're not as easy to explain. They're more emotional and psychological. Oftentimes, it was not emotional and psychological for this lady, but a lot of times things come into our lives and there's just no explanation for them. And... I'm so grateful, as I know you are, that we not only serve and worship a God, but we're cared for by a God who is so much bigger than we are and understands and knows. And as the Stephen Curtis Chapman song said that I heard as I was coming over this morning, paints with a different brush than we see or paints a bigger picture than we see. So I'm grateful for that. And it's also... A good segue this morning into the message to tell you that if you're here for the first time, the very first time, then I want to apologize ahead of time. As Drew mentioned in his prayer, I told the group that's praying this morning, we're going a little bit deep today. And if you haven't been here on some of the, well, on any of the sessions that we've talked about the Trinity, let me start by saying this. The the title of this whole series is All of God, Exploring the Mystery of the Trinity. There are a lot of things that we absolutely cannot explain, we'll never comprehend fully. But one of the big goals that I have for this whole series is that, that the idea of God would grow in our mind or the, the reality of God, the person of God and the Godhead three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit would grow in our minds and that He would expand. And one of the benefits of, of Him expanding in our minds is that we are we are more prone to trust Him when there are things that we can't understand, things that are just so much bigger than we are. So, with that in mind, we want to return to a, a theme that we've talked about earlier. Jesus is God. He's not someone who was created, but He is equal, co-eternal with God. But we want to think of it in context of uh, uh, of interacting with those who say that He's not. That God, that Jesus is lesser than the Father. You know, you're home on a, a Saturday morning and you hear the doorbell. The dreaded doorbell. And you go, open the door, and there stand two, maybe three people. If they're young men, dark slacks, white shirt, you know they're Mormons. If there's a woman involved, probably Jehovah's Witnesses. Every once in a while, every once in a blue moon, a Baptist will show up on your door. But usually, it's Jehovah's Witness or Mormons. And they want to talk with you. 
problem is you don't want to talk with them. Generally, for one of two reasons. One, you feel it's a waste of time. You're not going to convince them. They're not going to convince you. It's a waste of time. Or two, you're afraid that you will lose the theological debate that most certainly will ensue. It's not that they're going to change your mind, but you know that they're well trained in a few little areas. And chances are not very good that you're going to be able to keep up with them and you're going to just get frustrated and say, well, you're a heretic, get out of here. And and you don't want to do that. So, you know, you try to politely some way say, look, it's no need for this conversation. I don't know what's wrong with my voice. I have recovered from Game 7, Hurricanes game the other night. I don't know what it is this morning. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons have have significantly different doctrines, but they find common ground in the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. And by the way, let me just add one more thing to what I said a while ago. If if you're here for the first time and you're just sort of getting in, there's no way that you're going to get everything that I say this morning. Don't try to. Don't try to get everything. But just ask the Lord to open your heart, open your mind and understanding and to be able to grab hold of what it is you're supposed to, to, to get this morning. God brought us all here together for a reason. So let's discover what it is. It's different reasons, of course, and that's the point. Well, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons deny Jesus, the deity of Jesus, but that's true of all cults. In fact, in the very first session that we did on this, on the Trinity, talked about the three characteristics that you always find in cults. There are a lot more things, but, but these things you can always find. First of all, they deny the deity of Jesus. They all claim that Jesus was and is lower than God the Father. It would automatically follow then, although you might not see this connection immediately, but it it has to follow that there is a system of works by which they, they seek to impress God and find favor in His sight. And in which, which in a sense when they impress God, they obligate God for their salvation. That's what Paul was saying when he said that, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. We cannot stand before God and say, You must let me in because of this. No. If it's not His grace, we got no chance. We have no chance. And then the third, Oh, by the way, Jehovah's Witnesses would, would say that we're saved by grace. But some are not worthy of grace. Well, I think that would be all of us. None of us are worthy of grace. Grace implies the fact that it's either Him or it's nothing. It's all Him or it's nothing. Another major mark of a cult is that there is a source of revelation outside of the Bible. Thus, the Book of Mormon and the Watchtower Society publications. Usually an authoritarian figure oversees the writing and dissemination of this new revelation that has come from God. Generally, it goes back toward one person. Why is it that we're so afraid of Jehovah's Witnesses and and Mormons? One primary reason is because they're so well trained when they come to our door, and they are. I mean, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, they're going to talk about their translation of the Bible that that sounds a whole lot like your translation with subtle differences. They'll also tell you why these verses are translated wrong in our Scriptures and why we interpret them wrong, even though 
none of the scholars that translated the New World Translation knew anything, if little, if anything, about Scripture, uh, excuse me, about Greek and Hebrew. When Mormons approach you, they're going to tell you that Jesus Christ is very important to them. And in fact, if you look at their logo, Jesus Christ is in the center and it's magnified. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. By the way, if um, uh, if you're also here for the um, very first time, you need to know that this is our first week of the summer going back to one service. So a lot of people didn't get that memo, and understandably. And so they'll be coming in, and that's okay. That's We're, we're delighted that they're here. But the Church of, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints speak of salvation through obedience to the principles and ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that all sounds good, but we've learned over and over that we can say the same things about God but mean different things. Which is why when we talk about theological issues, we have to use language that's not necessarily in the Bible. That's why we use words like Trinity. And we talk about the hypostatic union. Things like that. We use theological terms to to, to define very precisely what we mean. Because anybody can say, well, yeah, I believe uh, that Jesus is divine. What does that mean? They'll say, yes, he's divine, but it doesn't mean the same thing it means when we say it. Mormons contend that Jesus was pre-existent in spirit form. But all humans, according to Mormon belief, existed as spirits before they came to earth. Mormons also believe that Jesus was conceived in a literal physical union between God the Father and Mary, even though God had a wife in heaven. There's a heavenly mother if there's a heavenly father. Now, one of the primary differences between Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons is that a lot of the false doctrine that comes from Jehovah's Witnesses is a misinterpretation of Scripture, like I say, a slightly different translation in of, of Scripture, and then they say, well, and, and this is why it should read this way instead of that way. Whereas Mormons derive much of their faulty doctrine from the Book of Mormon. They just, it just is extra. And we would say it's made up. It just, Joseph Smith received a message from God, what he thought was from God, from the angel Moroni, and he wrote it down. There are excellent books and websites designed to help you witness to people in cults and to interact with people about their beliefs. Uh, And I'm going to mention some of those resources a little bit later. For us to deal with the primary heresies of these different cults, point by point, would require a many-week series. It would take a long time for us to go through that. What I want us to do today is to reaffirm our belief and understanding that Jesus is God and has always existed equal with God and as God. He was not created. We're going to look at our text this morning, uh, John 1, verses 1 to 18, and afterwards I'm going to mention some specific errors, well, a specific error primarily taught by these two churches and how we might deal with the false teaching. But the primary goal is to encourage you to know truth, well enough to not only be fully convinced in your mind, but also that you can articulate and defend the doctrine of Jesus' deity. And it's not going to happen this morning. You're going to have to, all that you can do this morning is say, you know, I want to know more about that. And then jump in. John 1, verses 1 through 18 is our text. 
Would you please stand as we read God's Word together? Look at a few of these verses. Primarily, we're going to spend time in verse 1. We'll, we'll certainly also look at verse 3 and 14 and 18, but, but, but we need to read this whole introduction, this to the book of John, where John sets the stage. And by the way, <laughs> to me, one of the greatest evidences, one of the greatest evidences of the Holy Spirit's uh, involvement through humans writing God's Word is the Gospel of John. Uh, clearly, John wrote this book. The grammar, the vocabulary, very simple. Structure and the doctrine and the teaching of this book may have been able to be written by a brilliant man or woman, but it wasn't written by John. But it was absolutely written by John. And this prologue is profound beyond imagination almost. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we're talking about the Word today. The Word made flesh. And we recognize the intent that you have in calling Jesus the Word. We're so glad that you have not left us here to figure this all out. And what a shame when we forget you and think that that's our responsibility because then we get pretty full of ourselves. But Father, as we have confessed this morning, there is a great deal of pain in our lives. And so we are reminded that we don't have it all figured out. 
and that you're God. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us the truth about your Son. And in essence, teach us about you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yahweh, we worship you and invite you into our hearts and lives this morning. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you and be seated. John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does that first make sense to you? Is that clear to you? Well, well, it probably would be if you know what word stands for. The English word word, this is not going to be easy, you understand. <laughs> the English word word comes from the Greek word logos. In Greek philosophy, logos stood for the principle of reason that governs the universe. Just some sort of nebulous idea. But it does govern the universe to many first century Greeks, intelligent Greeks. There was no God beyond Lagos. Certainly it was a day of polytheism where people worshipped many gods. But there were a lot of intellectual Greeks that said, no, it really doesn't exist. There's just sort of this reason. It's like the force. May the force be with you. May the Lagos be with you. Was sort of the idea in Greek philosophy. For Hebrews, Lagos represented something far more sacred. It was the ultimate expression of God. The Hebrew word for word is dabar. D.A. Carson says that God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, salvation. There are lots of verses to back that up where the word dabar is used, God's word, which... We don't have time for this morning. But, but the point is that the Jewish mind would understand God's word to be in essence inseparable from himself. It was his self-expression. It was who he was. Now when John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning, he was recalling Genesis 1-1. Same language that's in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1 says, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God existed before the world was ever created. That's pretty self-evident, I would, I would think. Now, John is telling us that the Word also existed before creation. And if the Word is simply God speaking, that's no big deal. But verse 3 tells us that the Word was responsible for creating everything that exists. Does that mean that God spoke His Word and the earth came into existence? That's what Genesis 1 and 2 tell us. But in John 1, 3, the Word takes on personal qualities. And now we're told that the Word is a person. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And it's not referring back to God, it's referring to the Word. John was building a case. From this point on, John went on to, to talk about how that life is in the Word and how the Word was a light in the darkness. But the light was rejected and it's clear 
that it was a person who was rejected, not just truth. For those who received him, we are told in verse 12, he saved and gave the right to be called children of God. And then finally in verse 14, we're told that the word became flesh or was born as a human. He was born as a human and he lived among us. The word became flesh. Now the person is immediately identified as the son of the father, a claim that Jesus makes repeatedly for himself in this gospel. To further confirm that John was speaking of Jesus, he went on to explain how John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus and that it was this very Jesus who came from God and who was with God and who was God. It's very important that we understand that the claims that are being made in this prologue to John's gospel found in these first 18 verses of chapter 1. We, it's important that we, we understand what he's saying. And if you understand the very clear and profound statement about Jesus' deity, then you'll be ready for the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons when they come to your door, right? Well, you've got to understand that those who deny Jesus' deity or divinity are prepared to argue about this passage. They see it another way, as it were. Perhaps you're familiar with the way that those who ostensibly take their cue from Scripture for truth and yet deny the deity of Christ translate or interpret John 1.1. Let's look again at the way that we read this verse in the English. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons like to point out that this is an improper translation from the Greek. They point out because there is not a definite article before the last word in the sentence, then it should be translated another way. Now, I'm not going to put the actual Greek up on the screen, but I'll try to make sense of what I've just said by putting what some would say, this is the way the English should look, or excuse me, if the English looks this way, then this is the way the Greek should look. At the end of the sentence, they say that if we're going to use the English translation, the Word was with God and the Word was God, then in Greek it should be written like this. The Word was with the God. I left that out. I'm sorry. That should be up there. The Word was with the God and the Word was the God. It needs a definite article in front of it. Since there is no definite article in the Greek text, some say that it should be translated this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. So that Jesus is lesser than the Father. Now, I can imagine that this is confusing. I I wasn't satisfied myself when I was writing this out and just couldn't say it the way that I want to say it. But the point that they'll make is, oh, no, 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 in the Greek text. I heard Howard Hendricks one time speaking to a professor at Dallas Seminary and said he had, was home from recovering from surgery and on Sunday morning and he you know, got a knock on the door from a Jehovah's Witness. He said, well, come on. You know, and the person said, well, you know, this in the Greek this says this. And he says, well, let's check that out. And he pulled his Greek New Testament off the top of the... Uh, uh, television, and so they had a good time, as you can imagine. But they're going to tell you that in the Greek, 
It shouldn't read that the Word was God. That last phrase should read, the Word was a God. Fact is, and and I understand why you'd be unwilling to engage someone in this conversation if you can't pull out a Greek New Testament and say, okay, well, let's look at it then. You know, it says, just because it says, doesn't say ha-logos doesn't mean that it's not. Fact is, they don't know what they're talking about. They've just been trained in a particular way, and, and they're parroting that back to you and they know they they know what to anticipate they know what your objections are going to be and they've got an answer for it do you know what a predicate noun is a predicate noun or nominative in the greek is a noun that follows a to be verb like is or was a predicate noun renames the subject of the sentence you were just really anticipating this english lesson weren't you when you came this morning as an example of a predicate noun, we, we would say that Barack Obama is president of the United States. Or for those of you with different political inclinations, John Roberts is the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Works either way. The predicate noun, president, is renaming the subject of the sentence. They're one and the same. And that's what's happening in John one one. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Obama is president. The Word is God. That's the connection that's being made. In fact, in the Greek, the absence of a definite article with a predicate nominative or a predicate noun actually is emphatic. It, it emphasizes it even in, in a greater way. And it's you could say that the Word was absolutely God. It's a very emphatic statement about the divinity of Jesus. So now you're ready that you've got the grammar cleared up of John 1.1 to debate the deity of Jesus based on the structure of the Greek text, right? Well, I want you to know that not only is there an answer to the technical objection that is made by the deniers of Jesus' divinity, but that in fact, the whole argument itself is problematic and it's bogus. Besides the illegitimate use of the Greek grammar, there is a significant problem saying from John 1.1 that Jesus is a God, but not the God. Jesus is a God, but really not God. During this series on the Trinity, we've discussed at length the non-negotiable belief of both Jews and Christians that we serve one God. Just because we believe in a trinity doesn't mean that we say Jesus or, or, or God is three. We say that He is three in one. Three persons, same nature, same essence. Whatever it means to be Jesus, it means to be God. Whatever it means to be the Holy Spirit, it means to be Jesus. It means to be God. It would be unthinkable, it would have been unthinkable for the Apostle John, not only a Jew, but a leader in the first century church to imply that Jesus was a lesser God than the Father. There's only one God, and to say that Jesus is a God rather than God Himself, as John clearly states in chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus, who is God Himself, told us about The Father is what he's saying. In in context, the idea that Jesus is a God is impossible. Either he was God 
or he was an imposter, a false prophet, and a blasphemer, as the Jews said he was. In fact, that's what they used. His claim to deity, he's made himself equal with God. I cannot take that. He's worthy of death. They had to go through the Roman authorities, but that's how they got him. That's how they justified having him crucified. So how would you deal with a Jehovah's Witness who denied the deity of Christ and pointed to the grammar of John 1.1 as evidence for his or her belief? Well, first of all, you have to deal in love. And if I, I don't mean to, to, to sound patronizing or, 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 or overly sarcastic, although that's, you know, we all are inclined to at times when we think about those who abuse the the doctrine of the Lord, you have to be patient with people like this and have to deal with them in love. That's the second thing. It's going to take more than one session. You're going to have to be patient. There's a difference in the way that we deal with false teachers, false prophets in the and those in the church uh, or outside the church who have been led astray by false doctrine. We deal differently with them. And you're going to talk about that in home group this week from Second Timothy chapter 2 in particular. In dealing with someone who uh, has been mis- misled on on doctrine, you don't even this doctrine. You don't even have to talk about the grammar. A, a person would have to re- to reject or or reinterpret a whole lot of scripture in order to deny the truth and the doctrine of the Trinity. Not that one argument is going to do the trick, but just to give you an idea of one of the ways that you can deal with Jehovah's Witnesses is to go to John seventeen three. Have them read this verse. Uh, that's a part of, of Jesus' prayer in the garden on the night that he was arrested. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then ask your friend, well now, would you agree that there's only one true God? And especially Jehovah's Witness is going to say, well yeah. And that's what I've been trying to tell you. There's only one God. Then go back to John one one and say, then how is it consistent to say that this is saying that Jesus was a God. If there's only one God, then it's a horrible thing to call Jesus a God. We do believe that Jesus is God, do we not? We worship Him as God, just as the disciples did last week that we read about in Matthew 28. The goal today is not to talk about how to witness to Jehovah's Witnesses or a Mormon in three easy steps. It's impossible to do. What I want, wanted you to see, what I want you to see is to see how the debate goes regarding the, this most important truth and, and, and to help you see why you need to understand this at a fairly deep level. And why you need to be able to articulate what you believe. If you have a strong belief system, you'll be in a much better position to help someone understand who is in darkness. I want to share a couple of resources with you. In in preparation for this message, I went to Lifeway and uh, I I picked up this book. Actually, I was there for something else and I thought, well, I mean, some pretty seriously technical commentaries on the first chapter of John that I have been consulting, but but I thought, well, hey, this this might be helpful. And, you know, I just 
picked it up, thought may be good, may not be good, but it's really great. Ron Rhodes' book, Reasoning from the Scriptures with the Jehovah's Witnesses. This copyright is 1993, uh, and I would heartily recommend it, though, as a resource to help you find biblical ways to interact with those who don't believe that Jesus is God. Great suggestions on how to gently engage someone that is led astray on this doctrine. Another resource is Watchman Fellowship. Uh, You may recall that the president of this apologetics ministry, James Walker, was here about three years ago. He spoke on a Sunday morning. spoke on a Sunday morning and either a Saturday night or a Sunday night. I can't recall which. The the web address, uh, watchman.org, is exceptionally good, and it, it deals with all... Almost anything you'd come across, Mormonism, Oprahism, whatever, you know, you're gonna, you're dealing with. He's, he's dealt with it on, on his website. All kind of follow on gang, gong, I mean, what, what is that group in China? I've misspoken, I think. Um, but, but this site will help you interact with people from all kinds of cults and religions. Well, this morning as we prepare for communion, I want us to reaffirm our belief in the deity of Jesus Christ uh, as we quote together the Nicene Creed, which is really an updated version of the Nicene Creed. It's also written in the first person as opposed to uh, first person singular rather than first person plural, so it might be a little different than you're used to. In quoting this creed, we reaffirm our connection and belief in spirit not only to the Lord Jesus Christ, to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also to our brothers and sisters who have gone before us and our brothers and sisters everywhere in the world who believe as we do about the Trinity. So, would you please stand as we quote together the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God, very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thank you and be seated. And if the elders would come. 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul speaking to 
the church at Corinth and addressing the importance of the Lord's Supper, the, the communion with the body of Christ, the participation in the body of Christ, he called it in chapter 10. And now he is addressing the importance of this communion, not only with the Savior, but also with the body of Christ that meets here with all of our brothers and sisters. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just close your eyes for a moment. In this moment, before the Lord, we're told in the same passage that we should not take this cup and participate in the bread, the body of Christ without examination. <clears throat> Ask the Holy Spirit to deal with you in your relationship with the Lord. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you belong to God, then we invite you to participate with us in this communion. But for all of us, let us heed the warning of Scripture and spend time not in fear, just in confession before the Lord of any sin that would hinder what God desires to do in your heart at this time. Our Father, we are grateful for the plan that we understand at the level we can. That you sent your Son to fulfill the law and die as a perfect substitute and sacrifice in our place. That our sins might be forgiven. Thank you, Father, that you have also sent the Holy Spirit to confirm your word in our hearts and to show us our sin and to lead us to a place of confession and cleansing. And we recognize that our sins can only be cleansed because of the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled on our behalf. And this morning as we come to this table, we come with open and grateful and mournful and hearts, though, Lord, that are delighted to be connected to you. In Jesus' name, amen.